From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. When U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson announced in August of 2019 that he would be stepping down, months passed before Governor Brian Kemp announced a temporary replacement in a highly anticipated announcement. Today, I'm proud to announce that conservative businesswoman and political outsider Kelly Leffler will be Georgia's next U.S. Senator. During the announcement, Governor Kemp introduced Leffler as a woman who worked her way up the corporate ladder and achieved the American dream, making her the very successful and very rich finance executive that she is now. Beyond that, however, Georgia voters don't know so much about their new senator, who was sworn in by Vice President Mike Pence on Monday. Greg Bluestein does. He's political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's been covering Senator Leffler, and he joins us in the studio to tell us what we know or don't and what to pay attention to. Greg, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Governor Kemp's appointment of Leffler came as somewhat of a surprise. Representative Doug Collins from Georgia's 9th District was considered pretty much the favorite for that appointment. Why do you think Kemp went in a different direction? Well, he wanted to do a few things. He wanted to look a little bit outside the box, and in Republican parlance, uh, tapping a female uh, Republican senator is outside the box. And he wanted to go with someone who was not part of what he conceives as as the establishment. Um, and, And Kelly Leffler... Although she is part of the business establishment in, in Georgia, she is not part of the political establishment. She's a political newcomer. As, as you heard him say, she is an outsider. She has never served in office, never run for office. She ble- briefly flirted with a run for Senate back in 2014. But she is not part of what you would see as the, as the Georgia political you know, structure here. And the interesting thing about her, and one of the reasons she is such a fascinating political uh, character to cover, is that she is so so unknown among even Republican activists, Republican elected officials, the people who kind of drive the backbone of of the Republican Party here in Georgia, um, a lot of them reserved judgment on her, not because uh, they didn't like her or because they were concerned about her, but because, frankly, they had never met her before and they Mm -hmm. wanted to meet her. Oh, right. So you've been digging into a little bit about her. In Governor Kemp's appointment speech, he compared her to President Trump. Let's hear just a clip from that. And like our president... Kelly is ready to take on the status quo, the politically correct, and the special interest. She knows that Washington is fundamentally broken. She knows that we need to drain the swamp. She knows that, our, as our soon-to-be senior Senator David Perdue says, the road to socialism will not run through Georgia. Well, so uh, Governor Kemp there echoing some some actually very uh, Trumpian statements, certainly. Before she was appointed, President Donald Trump did meet with now Senator Leffler. Do you, do you know how that meeting went? Yeah, um, it didn't go that well. Um, it was uh, a part of go- the governor's attempt to win Donald Trump's support for Kelly Leffler because he had so actively, behind the scenes at least, uh, lobbied for the governor to pick Doug Collins to the seat. Doug Collins is a known quantity. He's one of the, the president's most forceful defenders against impeachment and supportive of his, of, of his agenda. And Kelly Leffler was not that well known to him. So um, that, that secret of meeting um, back in th- around Thanksgiving um, didn't go so well. I was told that the president left unswayed, still wanted um, Doug Collins to be the pick. But the fascinating thing since then is that the president has been silent. Um, on both Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler. And so for Kelly Leffler's team, that's, that's a win.
Doug Collins, who still may run for the Senate uh, in that seat vacated by Johnny Isaacson. Also, we're going to have another race because David Perdue's term is up. So this is really setting up the stakes for a big senatorial kind of showdown in 2020. Huge. You know, the, the split between Democrats and Republicans is 47-53 in the Senate. And so if Democrats can flip these two seats, they're, they're well on their way to f- the flipping the chamber. So that's why this you're going to see an unprecedented amount of attention, resources, and just and just money um, spent on, on these two races next this year in Georgia. And she has a great deal of her own personal fortune that she could be spending. And that's another one of the reasons I, I neglected to mention earlier why Governor Kemp picked her. I mean, it had to be a factor is that she's going to spend $20 million at least of her own money. That's what she's pledged to spend on this race. So, you know, when you're talking about someone who can self-finance their campaign to that extent, because, you know, as you know, she's facing election in November for the remaining two years of Senator Isaacson's old term. So um, she has to hit the ground running immediately. Well, let's hear a little bit about that. Uh, President Trump, not swayed, but how about Republicans in and outside of the Georgia political circles? What was their response or what are they thinking now? Well, she's been going on an extended rollout tour um, since her appointment. And, and, And notably, as I mentioned, a lot of these top Republican leaders said they welcomed her, you know, they, they, they look forward to meeting her, but they didn't endorse her. And so a lot of uh, local activists are saying the same thing. They're reserving judgment. They want to see how she, you know, acts the first few months, what votes she takes, what priorities she has the first few months she's in office. And very quickly, she set out to make clear that she was going to vote against the Democratic-led push to impeach and to oust President Donald Trump. Uh, she and her husband, who's a very powerful and wealthy financial executive, have do- made donations to Republican campaigns and Democratic campaigns. She has said unequivocally that she's pro-Trump, anti-impeachment. What else do we know about her political beliefs and policies? Well, the the, the um, debut that Governor Kemp gave her could have just could have been him talking about President Trump, right? I mean, an outsider wants to drain the swamp, who wants to fight the the establishment, and the status quo, wants to shake things up, right? That that's that's those are all the buzzwords and special interests. Those are all the buzzwords that we heard uh, President Trump supporters talking about. Um, so he's trying to quickly align her with President Trump because the the last thing he wants is someone like Doug Collins to take that space and to compete against her on the on her right flank. Um, she is trying to establish her own political identity right now. There's very little breathing room between her and David Perdue or her and President Trump right now. There's no known distinctions um, in terms of policy standpoints. She says she's anti-abortion. She's kind of distanced herself from her team. Her, she co-owns the WNBA franchise, The Dream, which came out against the Religious Liberty Bill back in 2016. Mm-hmm. She's distanced herself from that position. She says she's pro-wall. She's pro-military. She's pro-conservative judges. So she's, she's looking to make it nearly impossible for conservative critics to say that she's not conservative enough. I'm speaking with AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein about Georgia's newly sworn in Senator Kelly Leffler and what Georgians can expect from her in office. One of the things that Governor Kemp highlighted in his appointment was her upbringing. Tell us a little bit about the background of Kelly Leffler. Yeah, for folks who, and conservative critics have already said that how does this, you know, uh, nearly a billionaire, multi-multi-millionaire um, fi- uh, finance executive connect with average voters? Well, on the campaign trail already, she's highlighting not her her tech executive, her finance executive background, but her upbringing in rural Illinois where she grew up on a soybean farm. Um, she 
immediately landed a spot on the very powerful agricultural committee in the U.S. Senate. And um, I think she'll be highlighting some of the work she does there to try to try to boost her credentials with these grassroots conservatives who, who could well determine her fate. Kelly Leffler's husband is worth something like half a billion dollars, if I've got that right. Might even be more than that. And as you said, that could help when coming to financing a campaign. But how about being so wealthy? Could those finances or those kind of relationships complicate her role as a senator? They sure could. Uh, He is the CEO of the Intercontinental Exchange, which is an Atlanta-based company that's basically a financial trading platform giant. It owns, it's so big, it owns the New York Stock Exchange. So that's how powerful it is. And as a senator, she will vote on... On a range of issues, including regulatory and financial issues, including um, commissioners for the for the Securities and Exchange Commission, which oversees a lot of these trading platforms, including the New York Stock Exchange, and she'll have to also figure out how she will uh, distance herself from potential conflicts of interest. Whether she puts her finances in a blind trust, uh, whether she recuses herself from certain financial votes that might not even be on our radar right now, but that could come up. Well, and here is Kelly Leffler in the speech at the appointment trying to establish her bona fides, I guess, as a, as a conservative. Here she is. Make no mistake, Washington Democrats want to overturn much more than an election. They want to overturn our way of life because they resent America's success. In his farewell speech to the Senate, Johnny Isaacson called for bipartisanship and championed working across the aisle. But here, Senator Leffler takes a different tone. So what does that mean, Greg, for Georgia politics? Well, what a contrast, right? I mean, Senator Isaacson, after 45 or so years in public service, ended with an embrace with John Lewis, the Democrat, you know, ended with this, this bipartisan show of support from both sides of the aisle in the U.S. Senate. Um, we don't know enough about whether or not Kelly Leffler will, will try to reach out across the aisle. But so far, her, all her rhetoric, all her tone, all her stances have been all about being conservative and, and being pro-Trump and, and standing with other Republicans. So, you know, it, it could take some time to, to figure out if she is going to be a consensus builder like Senator Isaacson or if she's going to be more partisan. That sounds like campaign speech in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, and, and she is. I think her entire introduction in this rollout has all been about trying to buffer her from a potential conservative opponent like Doug Collins or, who, or someone else. Doug Collins could decide tomorrow he doesn't want to run, but another conservative could, could step up and run. And, and, and this type of election, it's a special election. It's not a normal election. So there's no primaries to hash out nominees. So candidates from all, ball, uh, from all parties will be on the same ballot. So you could have 20 people on the same ballot. And in that scenario, she and her supporters are very worried about a strong Republican challenger who could, you know, end up in in a runoff instead of her. So does she inherit all of the committee positions that were held by Johnny Isaacson? No, she's had her own slate of um, commissions. And remember, Senator Isaacson was so senior that he was the chair of not one but two different committees, Veterans Affairs and Ethics. Um, So that sort of seniority is what you need to get those kind of top perks. But she has, I don't know if the word is inheriting, but she has taken on a lot of his staff, which is very important. So his chief of staff, some of his senior advisors are now on her campaign, on her administration. Administration as well, and so she's. It's very important to have that kind of transition because this is a huge job. You have constituent services. You have all sorts of policies to craft, all sorts of committee work to do, and so having uh, folks that who already know Georgia and know the issues that she'll have to confront up in Washington is going to be important for her. So in the 2020 race, we could see Doug Collins or another pro Republican or many, as I, you said, running in this special election. 
How important would it be for Kelly Loeffler to get President Trump's endorsement now after a sort of lukewarm response from him in the past? Well, certainly that's what she's gunning for. Um, and uh, and at, at the minimum, she wants him to stay neutral in the race, right? Um, if, if, if he doesn't say anything negative about her or positive about a potential rival, then that's a victory. But um, at you know, maximum, they are going for the endorsement because you saw what happened in the 2018 race, the moment that the president endorsed Brian Kemp. He might have already, you know, he was already ahead in the polls in that runoff against Casey Cagle. But once he endorsed, the floodgates opened and it was a rout. Yeah. And the same thing could well happen, at least on the Republican side, um, if, uh, if, if President Trump does voice his support for Kelly Leffler. What are you going to be watching for when you're watching Kelly Loeffler uh, learning her chops or exercising her muscle in the Senate? Well, her first stances are really important. She has said she supports the resolution to dismiss the impeachment charges um, if they're never transmitted to the Senate. She's also backed Ted Cruz's resolution commending President Trump for his uh, strike on uh, the Iranian general. Um, but really how she evolves as a senator the next few months will be will be one of the most fascinating stories in Georgia. And also, we... we barely mentioned this, but what Democrat decides to run against her? Because you have Matt Lieberman, the son of Joe Lieberman, who's already announced, but you'll have a higher profile Democrat also get in the race. And there's several names floating out there, but the Democrat who runs against this race could help really define it and shape it. Greg Bluestein, we know we'll be hearing more on Political Rewinds, where you are a regular, and also your reporting for the AJC. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Greg is a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we welcome you to join the conversation about Leffler or any other thing that you hear on OST. In fact, the Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. Joyce Davis did. She heard the conversation with Malcolm Gladwell and said, Yay, what an excellent way to add to my fantastic start of 2020. Listening to my favorite podcaster, Revisionist History's Malcolm Gladwell on OST Talk. You can leave us your comment on our Facebook group. We may just read it on the air. Coming up, did you order from the Migos menu at Popeye's last month? Well, we'll learn more about the recent marketing partnership and what it indicates about fast food trends at large. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. You no doubt took part in or heard about the Popeye's Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich wars. Popeye's dropped some new weapons into its arsenal as 2019 drew to a close. The Offset, the Quavo, the Takeoff, and the Tour Rider popped up as meal options for people ordering Popeye's from Uber Eats. The first three are named for members of the hip-hop group Migos. You're listening to their song, Bad and Bougie. We came from nothing to something. I don't try nobody, good to go by. Call up the gang and they come and get me your river, give you a Bad and bougie. The tour rider? Well, that's real. When Migos is on tour, their actual tour rider, or the list of things they require, includes a whole mess of Popeyes. Kate Taylor follows the food, beverage, and retail industries for Business Insider. She's joining us from New York to talk about the Migos-Popeyes partnership. Kate, welcome back. Hey, thank you for having me. So one of the members of Migos, Quavo, made a joke on his Instagram about selling the Popeye's chicken sandwich out of his trunk at an inflated rate. So the real joke is that someone at Popeye's noticed. Is that what led to this partnership? It seems like it. Basically, Popeye's has been in the spotlight this year with the chicken sandwich wars, and this kind of seems like a way for them to stay in the spotlight. Um, 
I mean, Popeye's kind of like wants to keep the conversation going around them. So when people are talking about them, they've been trying to reach out to these celebrities and keep some kind of partnership going to kind of keep their name in the headlines. So tell me about what this partnership actually is. It's not that there's anything actually new on Popeye's menu here. It's kind of that they have some new ways to group their menu items um, that Migo says is how they order them. Um, so you kind of have the tour rider, which is basically almost $50 worth of Popeye's, um, which is what Migo says that they have every time they're on tour. So that includes sauces, chicken tenders, mashed potatoes, and then you also have kind of some different sub-menu items here. You've got the offset, the cuevo, the takeoff. So it's something where um, it gives people new options for ordering Popeye's on Uber Eats and also get people to realize you can order Popeye's delivery. So when it launched, it was marketed as being only available in Georgia, Migos, of course, from Atlanta. But Popeye's is a Louisiana-based company. Why limit this Migos menu to Georgia customers only? I think that's something we're seeing more and more in fast food is different chains trying to really connect to different regions in a more local area. So Amigos um, being from Georgia, Popeye's kind of saw that opportunity and decided to launch there. Um, I think that because these chains are so big, they want people to feel like um, they're still relatable and still kind of like a little bit of a personal touch there. But was the delivery deal, all these four meals available nationwide? It has been available nationwide. It started in Georgia, but since then it's gone um, all across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, I don't know any numbers on how successful it's been, but it definitely has been something that has kind of kept people talking about Popeye's. It was launched in December, but then set to end on January 3rd, so last week. Why the temporary menu? I think that it's going to be interesting because basically it's not something they're advertising anymore, but these are all things that are staying on the menu at Popeye's. So if you've ordered this in the last month or so and decided this is your new perfect order, you can definitely still order it. They just aren't going to know what you're talking about when you order the offset. Uh-huh. So this whole idea of creating scarcity, you know, it's only available for a limited amount of time. That has been a big winner in fast food, or has it? It definitely has been. And Popeye's kind of realized that a little bit accidentally. When the Chicken Sandwich originally launched. Popeye's famously sold out in just two weeks. They were supposed to have that for at least two months. But even more purposefully, you see things where Starbucks will have some drinks on the menu for even just four days. Um, so this idea of scarcity, it forces people to go immediately and kind of buy these things instead of putting it off. Um, so I think that it's something where people see it and they want to get it now uh, instead of kind of being like, oh, maybe I'll get that later. I'll go to KFC today. So Popeye's Chicken has had some interesting marketing ploys of late. Of course, there was the chicken sandwich wars, people testing Popeye's and Chick-fil-A sandwiches side by side. A huge branding deal for both of them. What is the appeal of these kind of campaigns? Because people were already fans of the chicken sandwich, it went really well for Popeye's, where um, people saw the two brands competing and People either felt loyalty to one or the other, and that really brought people into stores where even if they weren't loyal to one, they wanted to try one and kind of see how they compared. But you say it's been playing out well for them, but supply and demand also played a big role here. Lines were long to get a Popeye's chicken sandwich or Chick-fil-A sandwiches led to violence at some locations over a chicken sandwich. So is that a net positive? I think it's hard to say. I think that we're still going to see these things play out in 2020. 
Uh, for Popeyes, in terms of sales, there were definitely positives, but in terms of how their workers were feeling, there were also a lot of negatives there. Um, dealing with violence in stores, dealing with angry customers, dealing with food shortages. Workers who spoke with Business Insider said it was really not an enjoyable time. In fact, it was a dangerous time or kind of a time of chaos for a lot of them. So it's something where Popeyes definitely needs to make sure they have the manpower and enough materials going into the new year. They said that after the chicken sandwich originally sold out in two weeks, they really worked on figuring out the supply chain, figuring out what they needed in stores um, for the relaunch. So far, it's been there's been kind of some violence still, some worries about safety, but I think that that's going to be the big thing that they need to make sure they're on in the new year. How about this deal with Uber Eats and Popeyes? So there's the food delivery service. What does this add to Popeyes' strategy and business plan and other fast food outlets for that matter? Delivery is a huge topic right now in fast food, and I think it's something that fast food chains really appreciate because you see much larger orders where you're ordering for a group, you're ordering for a party. That is gold for fast food chains. Instead of someone coming by and spending just a couple of dollars on a chicken sandwich or a burger, so delivery is really going to play out more and more in fast food um, over the coming months. Okay, Kate Taylor, were you willing to come down on the side of a particular Migos meal item? Oh, man. I mean, I'm pretty standard. I'm all about just the tenders, just the classic fried chicken. I think that that's going to be my (laughs) go-to. Kate Taylor, who reports on food, beverage, and retail industries for Business Insider, thanks so much for going out on a limb there. Of course. Thank you for having me. And if you're not in the mood for Popeyes, Migos has another song for you. This is Stir Fry. For more than a decade, the primetime reality TV series Shark Tank has given entrepreneurs a chance to pitch their ideas to a panel of wealthy business titans. These sharks then decide whether or not to invest in the idea or company. Last year, Atlanta's first Presbyterian church started its own Shark Tank. It's a social entrepreneurship vehicle called Epiphany. Much like Shark Tank, the church's Epiphany program puts out a call for budding business ideas, offers support to select entrepreneurs through business development navigator groups, which then help them refine their final pitch to be selected for a grant from Epiphany's pool of money. The second ever round of applications opened this week, and here to talk more about the program is Ellen Adair White. She's chair of the Epiphany program for 2020. Hello. Hello, Virginia. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. It's a great idea. And as I understand it, the idea for creating this program and the funding are somewhat linked. How did this all come about? Absolutely, they are. Um, Number one, what you need to know about First Presbyterian Church is that this is not our first rodeo in looking at creative ways to insert ourselves and use our talents to help the community and show God's love in the world. But what we have done is to rethink how we do that in a way that we think is much more contemporary and gives us the opportunity to create more sustainable solutions to some of these great, big, intractable problems that really face us on a daily basis here in Atlanta and around the world. So how is this funded? It's funded through the congregation. And last year, we were fortunate to have been approached by a filming company 
to film a movie in the in the um, facilities at the church here at 16th and Peachtree. And once that happened, we realized we had a windfall, and that coincided in parallel with us uh, designing a new way to do community ministry. And so that was our initial seed grant, and it was um, matched and exceeded by the generosity of our members. So walk me through the process for an aspiring business owner applying to this program, or it's an organization owner too, because are they nonprofits or for-profit companies? They can be nonprofits or for-profits, or it can be an individual who just has a great idea of how to save the world. So what do they go through in their application? The first thing that they do is they go online and they read about Epiphany and learn that we are all about uplifting and training individuals who want to create a business solution to a social problem. And that's the real key. This is a way that we hope to encourage individuals and organizations to create opportunities that don't rely just on donations so that there is a revenue model that um, is intrinsic in what they're trying to do. They fill out the form. We go through a screening process where we read all of the applications. Last year, we received more than 90. We hope to do that again. Uh, That pool is initially winnowed down based on the written application. We select a smaller pool for what we call navigation, and those are paired with business mentors, members out of our congregation who have volunteered to use their expertise and business skills to, kind of guide them to, guide, the to guide them through the process to understand what their needs are. And we'll further winnow that down to a small pool, probably 10 to 15, that will actually pitch to an independent panel of judges made up of other members. All right. I want to put a pin in that and come back to it. But I'm wondering if only faith-based organizations can receive these grants. No, not at all. Okay. We are a faith-based organization, and we do ask that applicants look and make sure that their goals align with what our mission states that we're trying to do, which is to bring light and solutions to the world. But they do not have to be Christian. They do not have to be a faith-professing individual at all. But we do want them to know that one of our goals and a mark of success for us is to spread God's love in the world. So they need to be comfortable with that. Let's see how they manifest. In the past round of applications and grants, you ended up funding five out of those 90 social ventures, focusing on a range of social issues, including fair housing, job training for at-risk populations. What are, are there any particular topics you're hoping to address in this round? No, and we are open to surprise. And that has been one of the most exciting aspects of Epiphany that has engaged our congregation's curiosity. We truly hope that we will be presented with ideas that we would never have thought of on our own. So Epiphany is a much kinder, gentler word than Shark Tank. (laughs) It is. It is. Who are your sharks, however, the people who make the decisions? We have a range of individuals. There'll be eight of them this time. And we have a range of ages and experiences. Some are venture capitalists. Others have come um, from the realm of small business and others have corporate backgrounds. Uh, We even have some stay-at-home folks who just have an intuition for what we're all about. How do you decide how much each venture receives? It depends on the needs and the goals that the venture brings to us and the opportunity that we see to be transformational where they are right now. So we're not trying to just get them across the finish line. We're trying to give them a 
a grant, and we're open to a different financial instrument if a grant is not what works, but something that is going to truly enable them to launch. So the members of your congregation have been a big part of this process, particularly when it came to supporting these entrepreneurs in the navigator stage. So how were they involved with the project? We had over 100 of of our members, volunteers with a range of business skills and expertise, insights and talents, come alongside the ventures that we navigated in round one. We navigated 21 ventures. So a quarter of them were actually funded. Mm -hmm. But what those individuals did was first meet with them, understand what they were trying to do, bring along contacts. The Navigator team walks with these individuals the entire acceleration period. This Epiphany Project, you're leveraging the power of a congregation quite differently than a lot of traditional church programs. You know, this is not a bake sale. No. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think is unique about your congregation that encourages them or enables them to meet the needs of these entrepreneurs? Well, I don't know that we have a unique congregation except that they were totally open and willing to follow where this big idea might lead. We have individuals who come from all over the city. We're located in Midtown right next to the High Museum. And we know that around us, within a mile, we have every conceivable social issue presented at our doorstep. But what we also have are a range of individuals that are educated and gifted. They're blessed with resources, but they all wanted to do more than to teach an hour of Sunday school or pass the plate. Ellen Adair, how do you measure success for this program? First and foremost, success is going to be seeing results in the community that are generated by the ventures that we fund, seeing refugees being more integrated into the community, seeing individuals who are experiencing eviction and potential homelessness rescued from that situation. But the other thing is that we want to see these solutions be long-term. So knowing that they are not only dependent on donations or philanthropic grants, that there is a true business model that makes them sustainable, that would be great. You've said that other church and faith-based groups have reached out to you and asked how to do community ministry better. So what now is your response to them? see our results, come alongside us and experience what Epiphany can do, not only outside of your congregation, but inside of your congregation. The level of excitement, the level of multi-generational engagement. This Sunday, we had our Epiphany kickoff, and we had over 120 people that showed up just to say, I don't know what skills I've got. I think I want to get involved. And we're off to the races now with, with a whole new round, too. Did they do so, it during Sunday service? Well, we did We did it during the prior to Sunday service, mm-hmm. but we had roundtable discussions, and people identified where they want to use their business and professional skills, and we're going to start matching them up. Ellen Adair White, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Virginia. Ellen Adair White is chair for the Epiphany Program at Atlanta's First Presbyterian Church. If you have a nugget of a business idea you would like to submit, the portal for Epiphany is open until February 2nd. We'll put a link at gbbnews.org. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought after a short break. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB and Virginia Prescott. 
Atlanta United has been a huge success, both in Major League Soccer competition and in cultivating a rabid fan base that makes matches at Mercedes-Benz Stadium feel like a party. Eumir Gutierrez, a.k.a. DJ EU, is essential to the raucous vibe. Well, we wanted to know more about his path from spinning records at Atlanta clubs to official DJ for Atlanta's beloved soccer club. DJ EU is used to staying up quite late, but kind enough to join us this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor. Well, see, so you worked really hard for this gig, you know, tweeting the club almost every day in 2016, saying in multiple languages, saying, I want to be your DJ. Was there even an official job position for DJ then? No. Uh, so once the team kind of like got a website and positions and all that, I would actually go in there to see if there was like a positioning where you could apply. Because mm-hmm. you, I thought about it, it was like, okay, there's an organization maybe on the corporate mentality versus like the club gigs where you will go kind of talk to whoever it was, turn in a demo or, um, and I wouldn't see anything. So then my whole process, like, okay, who's the marketing director or who's in charge of this? And, um, I couldn't find the right email. Uh, because I guess if you put, if they put that email out there, you know how many, right. You're going to you know, hear yeah. from everybody. Correct. So then I proceeded to contacting friends that worked at marketing agencies and kind of let the whole city know that I really wanted to, <laughs> Not even the gig, like try out, like have them give me a chance and explain why I wanted it. And it turned out that whoever they asked was a good friend. And we've been working for years in the club industry. And he was like, yo, you, like you really haven't heard of this guy. He's been, it's like, he's the guy. And I think just because of my Hispanic background, um, very fan of the sport um, since 96, 98, um, fell, saw World Cup and I fell in love with the sport like found my national team my like club teams in Argentina then my club team in Spain so fell in love with it um, that everybody in the city were like okay yeah he's from Puerto Rico when I moved here it was like college football why is it it's just college playing football like why are we so big about it and then Falcons as well. It's like I knew about NFL, but at that point, back home, all you really saw probably was like the Super Bowl for the commercials, right, and then right. you saw the Patriots win or something like that or the Giants. So it just wasn't in my culture, um, but soccer or football was, and I think the whole city knew that, okay. You let the whole city yeah, know, Yeah, like I either think. he, we let the, them him try out because we want him to shut up <laughs> kind of thing. Uh but it's like one of those things that I really wanted and uh, I just felt like it, I would have been right for. So uh, you said you really wanted it. Why did you want it? What was the appeal here? I just, so one, I'm a fan of the sport and um, I was scared that we being in the South and being such a college football city, a uh, football city, then maybe the Hawks or Braves, that they would have half-assed it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that well, way. Well, you just did, so there you go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that they would have done it the incorrect way. So I still I kind of wanted to make sure that, because remember, we didn't know what was going to be the reaction. We didn't know how right. many so when you started, season okay. ticket holders were going to be 
that we're going to be sold out every game. It was going to blow up. And, and let me just back up a little yeah. bit. You came from Puerto Rico in, in to 2000, Atlanta, 2002, yeah. to study yeah. mechanical engineering at Correct. Georgia Tech. And now at that time, they were still playing at Georgia Tech. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, but it wasn't even, uh, I don't think Tech had a team at the moment. It was all like intramural. Um, they just recently had built those soccer fields next to the rec center. So it was, and then the sport was very played. Like every time you see the who was playing, it was international students mm-hmm. from Europe, Middle East, uh, Latin America, and and very very few Canadians, Americans. Like you would see it, but uh, I just wanted the I wanted the sport to. How is the music to have a connection with what the sport was like, the cultures, the the background? So since I knew the sport and I knew the music, that's why I really wanted. I wanted it to be perfect. Let's say. Well, let's hear. Uh, this is a clip from "We Are Ready." This is one of the favorites. Is Archie Eversole? I'm getting chills. <laughs> And playing, it, it's when you came to Atlanta, you were playing as a club DJ in Correct. many, many places. So you got your name out there. That's why people knew you. Yeah. You know, marketing folks knew you. So what about the choice of songs here? You know, this is this has to be family-friendly fair. Do yeah. you find yourself, as, law, as well as finding things from all sorts of different cultures, having to change the vibe a lot for, for the sports crowd? Uh, it's So it's something that I've been doing at the club, uh, bringing, like, my sound, which I consider is the Latin background, to what is the Atlanta sound. So it wasn't really hard. The only thing I had to do was just clean up the songs a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Uh, it is a family-oriented uh, atmosphere. So there's songs that are popular, but certain reference talk about um, drugs and women in a certain way that we have to edit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll go and edit them, but... There's songs that are very famous that are like Swag Surf that I kind of play while the people wait as the players come in and I get the crowd to do the Swag Surf. Uh, But obviously it's a very edited version of a hook, just, you know, the, the important parts of the song. Well, let's hear a little bit of that Swag Surf. This is by Fly. So, so the the movement that goes like you know you're like yeah. you're standing on a surfboard kind so of doing your thing. So what we do is like um, I my department is called life operations, um, and the life operations teams they set up uh, when the players arrive they set up the golden spike. So we're responsible for the entertainment throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Big team, really awesome team, the best team in the whole stadium besides the engineers. And everybody that works for, like, Atlanta United and Mercedes-Benz is awesome, but our team is in charge of that. So I kind of talked to them, and at one point, the first time it started, I was like, yeah, I'm going to try this the same way I started the club. So I got on the mic, I looped it, and I was like, all right, like all my Atlanta United fans, put your arms next to each other, your best friend, your, your, your fan, like, if you don't know them, we're all family here, and... At one point, you just see two lines of people just going from left to right. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. So when we play We Ready in the stadium, it's like right before kickoff. 
and they kind of do the same thing. Like it's almost the same movement. So when I first saw the the supporter section, which is the best uh, section in the best supporters in the whole MLS, it's Atlanta United. I saw them do it. I was like, okay, we could replicate this. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the inspiration of the sounds, the songs come from the fans and as well the the players. Yeah, how do you talk to the players about what they want to hear? So, you know, what gets them revved up? So my relationship with the players started in the first season. It was more of like me reaching out like, hey, I'm the DJ. What do you guys want to hear when you come out? And a lot of them ignored me just because they probably thought I was just like another fan, 100 DMs a day. Um, and a player that we don't have anymore is Jamil Assad. Uh, he's from Argentina. And he was actually replied and we we i started my relationship with him and then i started meeting all the other players uh he's no longer with us uh which sucks because i loved him and great player but i guess you know the, the sports business it, it of it yeah, yeah so how do you how about reading the crowd you know you were talked about like watching them sway from side to side. that must be so powerful there are tens of thousands of people there this yeah. is unlike you know any club you've ever been so in. it's you play you I get tweeted a lot by the fans. Uh-huh. They actually like request songs and while you in live, not in live. Previously, mm-hmm. they'll be like, "Hey, you can yeah. this new song." So we'll look into it if it's good. And so there's a part that I'm actually not DJing uh, live. So it's 45 minutes prior to kickoff. It's when I really stop. But mm-hmm. I arrive two hours prior to we kick doors. So I'm four hours there before the game start. Mm-hmm. And what I do is we go to our control room. Uh, I talk to our tech op, and we create playlists. So, example, like if I know I'm not going to be DJing at a certain point, but the player wants to hear the song, I'll be like, hey, this is such and such a new song, and I'm going to text you when to play it. Uh-huh. Uh, so the same thing is like, hey, if new fan request. If I don't play it, you're going to play it. Um, we had a player floating Team Pogba, which an uh, international player, um, his brother plays for Manchester United. They have African descent, so he'd be like asking once, like the whole Afrobeat mm-hmm. movement just started. He will ask for it's like, hey, can you play this? It's like I'm starting today. Can you play it? I was like, sure. So there's a lot of like requests and stuff, but then we we try to play kids friendly stuff. Like Old Town Road was yeah. a huge like. You want to see the kids as well because it's a fam very family oriented. So you play a little bit for the kids, a little bit for the adults. You play the classics. You play a little bit of rock and roll. Um, so it's a very it's to me Atlanta United. It's it's a very how do I say it's like it's it shows what really Atlanta is a melting pot of so many cultures that I don't think any other sport has been able to do. Um, where I stand to watch the games, there's a gentleman that works security for the Mercedes. He's from Africa, and we stay talking about the sport, but it's just somebody. I come from a little island in the Caribbean. He's like in a different continent. Like it, it's, it's amazing. Like what the team has done besides bringing championships. It's just, it's really brought out what Atlanta is and what people couldn't see. Uh, and do you have a favorite song that you you know like that gets you going when you <sighs> get out there? Man, it's, it's at the moment. I'm so like like into it that I kind of don't really <laughs> like as long as the fans are like going crazy that's to me is my favorite song 
DJ EU. He is the resident DJ for Atlanta United Soccer Club, and he was voted Atlanta's best DJ by Jezebel Magazine in 2018 and 2019. Thank you so much for getting up this early in the morning. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm so, it's such a pleasure and honor, and sorry for the word. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks for speaking with me. You can also find DJ EU at Tongue and Groove in Atlanta and different events around the city. And his playlists are posted on Spotify. Details on our website, gpbnews.org. And we're going to leave you with some more sounds. DJ EU's Globalization Mix. The aerial arts are a thing across the country, helped no doubt by the popularity of Cirque du Soleil or movies like The Greatest Showman. Georgia's aerial community has grown as well. Challenge Aerial recently opened up in Atlanta. It's in a studio housed in a former Masonic lodge with 20-foot-high ceilings and lots of room for pursuing dreams of soaring high on silks, trapezes, and hoops. On Second Thought, intern Alexis Thomason went to learn more about the new studio. My name is Rini Essler. I am the owner of Challenge Ariel. Ariel is a form of physical and artistic activity, a physical activity and artistic expression that allows people to express themselves through dance and acrobatic movements on different apparatus. And here in our studio, we have four types of apparatus. We have something called aerial silks, which are essentially ribbons that come from the sky, so to speak, from the ceiling, that individuals can climb and then wrap themselves in in order to do different spins and drops and performance pieces. I'm Kat Saxon. I've been doing aerial for almost seven years now, and I've been teaching for two to three Aerial to me is everything. It can put you on, an, on a scale that's bigger and better than you thought you could be. Because when I started doing it, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't like trying to be a professional aerialist at all. I was just trying it for fun at 20 years old while living in Athens, Georgia. And I just fell in love with it right away and wanted to do it as often as I could. And it just hasn't stopped for seven years. I'm Olivia. I am 15. I am Annika. I am also 15 years old and I've been doing aerial for 10 years. Aerial for me is a chance to kind of escape and just be myself in a judgment-free zone. It's also a place where I can just really be expressive and work on like strength and flexibility and I think the whole circus community is just very open and supportive of each other the studio that we were in closed and I was devastated as were so many of the other aerialists that had considered that studio to be their home and at the same time I had two young girls and I thought to myself if there was ever a time to say to them a woman can do this a woman can own a business a woman can run a place now was the time so I opened my own so we've been in business for two and a half months and we are the largest aerial arts studio in Atlanta When I first started Ariel, uh, there was a student that had come from a ballet background named Suzanne Ziegler, and she was a force in the Ariel community, not only from her skill set, which was simply amazing, but she was so supportive of 
anyone that wanted to try Ariel. She, she was your biggest cheerleader. Like, if, if your major accomplishment was you got a toe to touch the trapeze, Suzanne was there cheering you on. She was applauding. She was screaming. She was so joyous of anyone's accomplishments in Ariel. But Suzanne had had a heart condition, which had we had all thought had been completely under control. Um, and she really tragically died. And it was stunning to the community. It was a horrible loss. But this studio had been the, the dream of hers, right? To open an aerial studio, to own an aerial studio that would embrace any member of the community. And so I just thought, you know what, I, I, I can do it alone in her honor. And so I did. The hunger for it has grown. The hunger for it has stirred. And I think that is true to, I'm not to speak for everyone, but I think everyone kind of feels that way right now. We're just, when we got this space, we all just felt like we couldn't get in here fast enough. We were so ready for it and we've been waiting for it for years and we finally get to perform. We're all looking so forward to it and nobody can stop talking about it and it's finally happening. I'm realizing as I'm talking to you we're finally in our new home and it's great. Our thanks to intern Alexis Thomason for that audio postcard. You can learn more about Challenge Ariel and their schedule of classes at challengearielatlanta.com. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Lorraine Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us on On Second Thought. Second Thought.